0: This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information.
1: Hello and welcome to The Edition podcast, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, the Spectator's Executive Editor.
2: And I'm William Moore, the Spectator's Features Editor. On this episode, we talk about the fallout from last week's so-called fiscal event, the future of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, and the case against Red Kites. First up, for her cover piece in the magazine, Kate Andrews looks at what could generously be described as a tough week for Trussonomics, and she joins us now alongside Robert Colville, director for the think tank The Centre for Policy Studies. Kate, the cover image of The Spectator this week shows Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng nonchalantly sharing a drink while utter chaos ensues around them. I think we all expected the the fiscal event to ruffle some feathers, but have you been surprised by the sheer extent of the fallout from Friday's announcements?
3: It's surprised everybody. I mean it was remarkable what was announced this was not a fiscal statement this was not even a mini budget this was a mega budget and we did get indication it was going to be a lot larger when the treasury published the uk growth plan with this lovely design around it definitely implying we were going to get a, a lot more than originally thought but what's interesting is that while well, you would expect journalists economists commentators, regular people, traders, the city to to be very alarmed by what they're seeing with the markets in freefall. I think the government is surprised too. I mean, notably calm. The Treasury did finally put out a statement talking about their medium term fiscal event, which is currently scheduled for November 23rd to try to get the markets to chill out, indicating that some kind of statement on fiscal responsibility was coming. But it's reported that Liz Truss didn't even want to put out that statement, that it was her chancellor that had to convince her to do it. I think the surprise coming from government is that they really believe that markets would respond well to them going for this lower tax, higher growth economy. And crucially, that markets would be willing to fund that transition. And that's why you saw, a, frankly, a budget that was so heavy on the borrowing side and didn't utter a peep about the spending restraint or fiscal responsibility side. That isn't what happened. They've clearly responded with mayhem. And I, I do think that Number 10 and the Treasury are going to be quite shocked by that.
2: So then what do you expect the government's reaction to be then looking ahead to November 23rd and beyond? I mean, is is this, is this- just spiralling into a full-blown political and economic crisis?
3: Well, it's very difficult to say because after the budget on Friday, after a very temporary spike in the pound, the currency dropped, borrowing rates started to surge and the Chancellor went on the media rounds over the weekend saying, well, we're going to double down, we're going to cut more tax. Since then, a lot more has happened. Sterling reached a record low of $1.03. And You've had gilt yields spiking to record highs. You now have a Bank of England Intervention saying that they're going to buy more government debt as a res- direct response of the government's own fiscal plans. So it feels like the chancellor needs to indicate some kind of fiscal responsibility in the near future. But it's, you know, it was noted to me in this piece. One Tory MP said to me, you know, you can trust Liz Truss to make good on her word. He, they say she's not a liar. But when was the last time you heard her talk about spending cuts? And I think the point they're trying to make there is she dropped that side of her agenda. In the leadership campaign, she's not looking. She wasn't looking to do massive spending cuts across the board anytime soon. And so, if they're forced into that, that could be very politically difficult indeed.
2: So, Robert, on the day of the not budget budget, you tweeted about the uh, the announcements, saying that the pro business agenda and stamp duty cuts and other other things that were announced made it almost a a centre for policy studies full house. So it seemed like you very much welcomed friday's announcements do you, do you still welcome them a few days later after the reaction of mayhem as as kate puts it
4: <laughs> well yeah lots of people have been delightedly reminding me of of that uh, of that reaction i mean i you know i was doing the, the thing I think tank always does which is when government does things you've asked it to you say hooray but it turns out that doing all of the things we asked it to and more at the same time was possibly a bit too too, too strong for the markets i mean i think the the, the sort of interesting thing here is you know It's almost as though the markets weren't paying attention to the Tory leadership contest because, in terms of the actual numbers, the the big ticket item was obviously the energy price cap, which everyone had been expecting and had been in fact had been announced before the Queen's death. The repeal of the national insurance rise, the cancellation of the corporation tax rise. Again, those had been talked about ad nauseam. And those were the sort of big, the really big ticket items on, on Friday. And, the, you know, it, to sort of look at the counterfactual, if, if a government was sitting, the new transfer had got up and said, you know what, now is the time to, to increase national insurance for, for businesses and consumers, and then to, to put six points on corporation tax starting in April, everyone would have said they were insane. It's in some ways it's not so much the detail as I, I think as, as the tone with which it was announced. This sort of um, you know the, the throwing in the fifth forty five p rate at, uh, at the end, then as Kate said, the, the further briefings about tax cuts. So effectively, what happened was that a bold, radical, and necessary program of supply side reform across the economy came across or was taken by the markets as a fiscal sugar high. That what they wanted to be this, uh, about this is about was we are going to. F- try to fix the plumbing of the economy. We're going to make it more worth your while to work, to invest, to come to Britain. And what it came across as is we are going to pump money into the economy at a time of already high, high inflation. And there was a in the immediate reaction there was a kind of there was a sort of some people would have been attacking the city, some people have been attacking the IMF, some people have been, you know, they, they just don't get it. I don't, I don't think you can do that. The markets are the markets. You can't buck the markets. You definitely can't say a word which rhymes with buck to the markets. Like, they win. They always win. So, you know, you need to convince them that you're that you're serious. Show them what your plan for growth is, which I mean, the plan for growth is a pretty good one, but show them more of your plan for growth. Tell them, you know, what, what exactly you're going to do and convince them, you know, that you have an overall plan for fiscal discipline, which will, will not just result in borrowing,
2: borrowing, borrowing. So, but Robert, do you think part of the problem then is, I suppose, a bit of putting the cart before the horse? So you're talking about supply side reforms. You're saying
4: all, all the right policies, just not necessarily in the right order.
2: Well, is, is that what you're saying?
4: I, as Kate said, I don't think anyone could have quite expected a reaction from the markets. But equally, the, you know, there were people warning of the, the, the potentially febrile reaction and the need to take market, market sentiment seriously. And, and I, do think, I do think there was a, a misstep made on that. I still, but I, I still think individually, you know, almost all of these measures are, are, are defensible. I mean, the, the 45p rate, for all its symbolic importance, you know, the reason they could afford to do that is because it raises basically no money. Personally, if, if I'm honest, I would rather have seen them uh, tackle the withdrawal of the personal allowance at the £100,000 mark, which we came up with a fiscally neutral way to do, because that's just an obvious distortion in the tax system, which everyone thinks is a, is a, is a really bad idea. But you can, you can see how, as, as Ryan Bourne has said, you, you can see how a lot of these measures were designed to, to promote growth and promote investment and make, to make the UK a better place to, to do business.
2: Well, Kate, so as, as Robert said, there as an example, so the the 45 pence tax rate raises, as you put it, no money or very, very little money. Do you think it's, again, in terms of doing things in the wrong order, was the government wrong to do something which will cost them so much political capital? Because we, we know from polling, the, the cut to the 45 rate is very unpopular have they used up so much political capital on something that won't put much money back into the into the economy and actually they could have used that political capital to do serious supply side reform on things such as house, housing being the most obvious example.
3: I think it's an interesting question Will and I'd sort of break it down in into how the markets view all this and then maybe how the public views all this because in many ways they're different questions I'm more inclined to think that the timing was slightly off here whilst I do think that tax cuts in and of themselves are a supply side reform and I I I have no doubt that some of the taxes that she cut will actually help to raise revenue down the line. Nobody thinks it's going to raise the 70 billion pound hole that she left in the public finances in addition to all the other borrowing we're doing. And so we really needed some other kinds of supply side reforms, like you mentioned there, Will, planning reform and the rest of it, in order to boost growth. I think to give the markets more confidence that that those holes, holes could be filled if they didn't want to do a major spending cut right because if you, you could also say well look we're cutting taxes but we're not going to spend as much and I think Rob made an interesting point about language I mean the language was so bullish you know we will scrap this national insurance levy but the money will still be there as if there were still a levy I mean this is the kind of stuff let's be honest if a labor government were saying it I think the, the center right would be you know banding the word socialist about you're, you're literally talking about, about a magic money tree there then there's the politics side of it and this is where the 45 tax rate becomes quite controversial because personally, I'm happy to see it go. And as has been pointed out by you and Rob, in terms of the tax cuts, I think that was about £2 billion worth of a £45 billion tax cut package. So we're not really talking about a lot of money. But Now that there is all this pressure on the government to insert fiscal discipline, it is going to be pretty hard politically to say, I'm cutting back from these services, I'm not giving certain public sector workers a pay raise, but I did scrap the 45p tax rate. And Liz Truss, to be fair to her, said she's willing to make the the tough argument. She's willing to move away from redistribution arguments. And she says she's willing to have this battle. But my gosh, that is a difficult political battle in a winter where people's energy bills, even with the cap and even with the support, are going to be going up significantly higher. I mean, for most people, the tax cuts that they're going to get, they're not going to feel overnight because they're going to be paying so much more because of inflation and energy bills. So if you really wanted to perhaps put yourself in the most difficult position to make the case for what you've done, this is how you'd do it.
2: Robert, so what do you think in terms of these big battles Liz Truss may have ahead of her? I mean, if she has to reassure the the markets sooner rather than later, the latest by November 23rd with the second fiscal event, I mean how do you think she might be able to do that when she has made so many of these pledges which are now quite politically difficult to row back from perhaps
4: yes i mean i it's a very tough situation as as kate has alluded to what has just happened makes it harder for her to get through her her reforms and it makes it harder for them to have the desired effect where if the if there is an aura of uncertainty shrouding the british economy then you are less likely to get business investment and and ultimately Growth, but that said, what would not work would be just to to, to retreat. They have very much sort of burned the bridges behind them on this. They have committed the the government and the Conservative Party to to this course, and they need to they need to see it through with with, with some, some, some modifications to the route, perhaps making sure that they they've shored up their, their flanks. But but fundamentally, you know, the, they 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 crossed the Rubicon on this, and I think what this comes down to is a a big bet on inflation. I think at the heart of quite a lot of this is. The Bank of England believes that inflation has become more entrenched into the economy and needs to be wrung out. The government, I think, believes that inflation is going is going away, that energy prices, that component of it is coming back, that the interest rate action we've already seen... Will will have an effect, and you know if you're an old fashioned monetarist. I know they're not very popular these days, but um, you know if you look at what's happening to money and credit supplies, there's there's some you know there is actually a case that the the you know, the, the bigger risk is the is the bank tightening too much. I'm, I'm not a professional on these matters. I I you know, I don't have a a judgment. I'm just talking to people who are who, who are who are good at this stuff. But I think you know the the problem is that you know, if if the bank has to keep raising rate, raising rates and raising rates and raising rates in the face of market scepticism, then that is a really I mean, bad situation. I mean, the, the, the implications for house prices, for the housing market, or uh, for you know, companies borrowing. We, we've become used to basically free and easy and cheap money. And the entire economy has rested on a sea of free and easy and cheap money. And for that to go away very, very suddenly will be very, very damaging
2: to the economy. Kate, just finally, we are recording this on The Week, of Labour Party conference. And the mood from what Katie Ball says in her piece this week, the mood at the conference seems to be very optimistic. You know, people saying that Labour are now on the cusp of of power i mean what what do you think of that do you think that the tories are just not being trusted on the economy either by the markets or the all the voters anymore and that labor have put themselves in a position where they are trusted on economic matters now
3: well i don't think labor have done much to put them in a position to be more trusted it's that the tories have done enough to to lose faith and labor has just sort of stood around waiting and they've been waiting for a really long time i mean i think there's a, an argument to be made that after more than a decade in power, you know, at some point the other guy's going to win. And so it might be inevitable. However, I think the brazen attitude to which that budget was presented last week is going to do a lot of harm in the medium term for the Conservative Party because you can certainly make the ideological and economic case for so much of what Liz Truss and her chancellor are trying to do. But I think Rob's made a really important point about easy and cheap money there. Even politicians like Liz Truss, who used to be wedded to the idea of fiscal responsibility, have got caught up in this new era in which you can borrow forever, interest rates will stay low, and you can spend and the markets will never punish you. And as I say in the piece, they decided to announce that budget in basically the very week when it became clear that the old economic rules applied and actually we might be entering a new era. And it's remarkable that you know interest rates going back up to what would be considered very average in historical terms are threatening the housing market and, and, and threatening a recession. It just shows how addicted we've all become yeah. to this and just, very and just, cheap money. Sorry,
4: just a, just a a, we should remember this isn't just a British story. What's happening to us is that we're the kind of the one laggy behind the pack who the wolves have seized upon. But, you know, this is happening to a lot of Aztec classes and to a lot of countries around the world.
3: That's a really important point. And and as one MP says to me in the piece, though, you know, big question, why why do we decide to stand out? This is not the time to be the outlier. And, And that is unfortunately what's happened to the UK. And as long as the UK remains in international headlines about its volatile economy, Labour doesn't have to do anything to seem more competent. They just really have to stand around and wait for the public to decide they wanted to try something else.
2: Thank you, Kate and Robert.
3: Next. In the magazine this week, Jenny McCartney has written that there is a
1: growing sense that tomorrow belongs to Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland. Melanie McDonagh joins us now alongside the politician Maria Cahill. Maria, do you think Jenny is right in her suggestion?
5: Well, First of all, I, I thought her article was very prescient on a number of points. I slightly disagree with her on this one. I certainly think that we can all see a rise in Sinn Féin. I think they're in a very good position to be certainly a part of the next government in Dublin. They, for the first time have been elected with the largest vote share in Northern Ireland. So we have Michelle O'Neill, who is the First Minister, but I don't agree that the future belongs to them. I think there's always a disconnect between politics, if you like, and what ordinary people feel on the ground. So while they may be certainly leading electoral politics at the minute, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will be in charge of the country, you know, forevermore. So.
2: And Melanie, what, what do you think? Do you think do you think it's right for nationalists to hail this moment as a signal that, that Irish reunification is, is, is getting closer?
6: Well, the interesting thing is the absence of triumphalism. I think that once upon a time, the, the demographic game was where it was all at. The time would come when Catholics with their larger birth weight would outbreed Protestants, and that was the great fear on the part of the Protestant and the great hope for the Catholics because Northern Ireland was, of course, established. As a Protestant state for Protestant people, with an inbuilt majority of two thirds to one third, and it was gerrymandered precisely to that effect by the Boundary Commission. But the extraordinary thing, I think, has been the muted triumphalism on the part even of Sinn Féin. And I think that's actually a prudent response that also addresses the increased sort of blurring of the boundaries nowadays which has come out from the findings of the census.
1: Maria, uh, following the death of the Queen, King Charles III recently visited Northern Ireland. How was he received?
5: I think he was received well. I mean, I, I think that people understood that there was a, a, a requisite mourning period for the Queen, for the British monarch. You know, I think that for the most part, people were respectful of that. I was very struck, actually. I, I took my daughter, who turned 12 last week, out to Hillsborough Castle to have a look. Mm-hmm. at the tributes that had been left by people there and we read you know messages from from everything from school children we met an elderly lady on a Zimmer frame who'd come over to pay her respects you know and I think that certainly it was an important visit particularly for the unionist community which I think has been demoralized in recent times but also because for the first time the first minister designate and the speaker were both members of the Sinn Féin party and they they both the most part were respectful in in terms of that visit. I have to say that was the right move, it's a pity it didn't come sooner. Um, We look to the history of Sinn Féin and and the British monarchy here and the the big mistake which they made of course which was boycotting the 2011 visit to Dublin by Queen Elizabeth who visited the Garden of Remembrance in Dublin. Um, The Garden of Remembrance for anybody that doesn't know is a memorial space which commemorates the lives and deaths of those who fought for Irish freedom against the British state. So the Queen, actually, I thought that was a seismic move on her part. And um, top marks to whoever was quiet diplomacy actually was able to pull that off because she went to the Garden of Remembrance, laid a wreath, respectfully bowed her head, and then later on that night went to Dublin Castle and said, which translates as President and Friends, it's the Irish phrase, And I think that that symbolism actually did probably much more in terms of Anglo-Irish relations than anything any Republican could do. I don't think that Sinn Féin had any choice but to be respectful and and welcome. I think one thing that people did miss was that the memorial service afterwards in St Anne's Cathedral was attended again by Sinn Féin representatives who stood for the British National Anthem. Something like that would have been unheard of 10 years ago. And in fact, I remember Martin McGuinness being at a a remembrance service and being effectively forced into having to stand when a a young TUV member sang the anthem from from the back of the hall that he was in, you know. So all of those things are important in terms of reconciliation. But I wrote a piece in the Sunday Independent, I think a fortnight ago now, in relation to the royal visit, where I said that there is a pattern of behaviour from the Sinn Féin party where every time they do something positive in relation to the British monarchy it's then followed by two steps back and I think we saw then that during the week there were some tweets from Mary Lou Macdonald and from Michelle O'Neill which people took issue with where Michelle O'Neill talked about people who feel they have a British identity where people who are British in Northern Ireland and then pointed out to her of course that it's not that they feel it they are it's part of their their DNA you know. Um, Mary Lou Macdonald was asked by a press core in dublin whether prince charles would do more to aid reconciliation and, and irish unity rather than completely batting off the question for the time that was in it she she decided to play with that and said that she would have a conversation at a different time so you know i really think it's incumbent upon the party to continue with the positive steps and and to do away with the the rabble-rousing side um, of the party who've been very expressive on social media over the past fortnight.
2: melanie uh, maria mentioned just now that the that... The Unionist community is not exactly in in rude health. To what extent do you think the Northern Ireland Protocol is to blame for this? And what do you think relations will be like between Liz Truss and Northern Ireland? After all, we know that historically she's been very, very bullish on the on the protocol as, as Foreign Secretary.
6: Yes, the protocol was traumatic for Northern Irish Unionists because it really did establish a de facto border in the Irish Sea. And that was um, indicative not just of a disinterested approach by the British government to Ireland, but um, a real want of identity with the interests and concerns of Unionists. And um, it is obviously ironic from the Conservative and Unionist Party that this should be the case. Um, Liz Trusses has made it clear all along that she is going to be, take a much more robust approach to the protocol, and it may be that, that unionists will get a bit more joy from her at the moment, given the, um, the rapid state of, of the uh, finances. I think her attention may be elsewhere.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and just finally, Maria, Jenny in her piece talks about the rise of middle-class nationalist support across Ireland. Is, is that something that you've, you've noticed happening?
5: Um, I think she also talked about a rise in, effectively, and I, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I, I think what she was saying was that there was a rise in toxicity or triumphalism in relation to commemorating IRA, dead personnel, volunteers is their term. And I think she's correct on that. So her point was that generally when you see the unacceptable elements of loyalism, if you like, you know, effigies on bonfires, it's confined to inner working class loyalist areas. And I think that, that she's been prescient about that. What we have seen is a shift in that it is almost, it's a romantic acceptability in relation to now singing songs like ah, Up the ra, For example, there's there's a, an attraction with that Just to come back to what Melanie was saying about the Liz Trust thing I actually think that there will be movement shortly on the protocol issue I think that her stance seems to have softened a bit and that there was a visit yesterday Chris Heaton-Harris was over meeting the Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney All of the mood music around that seems to have been much better than Brandon Lewis's time here but I, I agree in relation to the public finances I think her premiership will be a disaster for here. I actually think that the British government, and this is something which Jenny hasn't touched on, but the British government over the last three, four, five years have probably done more to aid Irish unity than any IRA unit ever did. And, you know, I don't think that that's particularly controversial to say when you look at all the missteps, mistakes and miscalculations that they have made. And I think that Julian Smith probably was the best Secretary of State that we had here since Mo Brandon Lewis threw that currency away then with his tenure and it was, you know it just looks like it was an absolute disaster not just in terms of how they have dealt with unionism and loyalism but how they have actually dealt with the legacy issues in relation to Northern Irish victims I think that's been an absolute disgrace and I worked quite hard with in terms of lobbying politicians in Westminster to try and rule that back so for example we had to actually get agreement through that bill, which is, is due for, I think, to go to the House of Lords soon. Just to deal with sexual offences, you know, the, the bill was going through with an amnesty for people who had committed sexual offences during the troubles and who had caused serious harm. The British government denied that that was the case, and it took an awful lot of effort on my part and on others to try to get the NIO to recognise that. So, there, I mean, that's that's a small example in and in a, a very small cog in a big wheel, but I think that the contempt that they've shown for the Northern Irish people has been disgraceful.
6: Could I add one other observation to all this, which is the blurring of the boundaries of the old boundaries has been really very considerable. Because um, in the first place, the old identification of Catholicism with nationalism is perhaps a less useful way of looking at the thing than identification with a nation or nationality, and so the of people who say they were British fell from 40% to 32%, and those who said they were Irish only increased from 25% to 29%. But there's this whopping great block of people, nearly 20%, who regard themselves as primarily Northern Irish, which is a discombobulating sort of element in the old sort of binary theme of things. And there's also that unsettling element, which is, um, to my mind, the very unwelcome rise of secularism. And there you've got Nine, nearly 10% of people who say they weren't brought up in religion, and there was a reference in the Irish Times, but I didn't um, catch elsewhere, that 17% didn't really identify with religion. So the old atomistic sort of this view was that um, Rule was Romal and, and the, all the lurid kind of perceptions that went with that. But what's happening now is something altogether more fluid, to borrow a term, from um, the gender categories. <laughs> and we have got these s- sort of floaty identities which don't quite belong in one category or another. Though I do applaud Jenny's reference to the old scheme of things where you'd simply say to yourself, you call yourself an atheist, is it a Catholic atheist or a Protestant atheist? <laughs> and that kind of um, it doesn't really fit where we're at now.
5: I think that's very true, Mel, and, you know, I always kind of look at things in terms of the shift in generation. My daughter, for example, I mean, I'm not religious, brought up and in, in obviously not far off the Falls Road, which people would recognise as being a, a nationalist area from a Republican family. But she goes to a Catholic school, but yet goes to Sunday school with the girl next door. Protestant Sunday school you know and it's it's just a a small example yeah absolutely you know and it's that thing about not people not being in a box you know she has a GAA shirt she goes to Northern Ireland matches so there is a whole kind of generational shift along with that I would hate to see that understanding I suppose of each other's tradition and and religion and culture and identity swept aside in the debate for constitutionality, and I think
6: that that makes Well, to be yeah, it's semn- the sort of non-binary category, really, yeah. because we've got a million people with just UK passports. We've got um, over 600,000 people with Irish passports of whom 100,000 have got Irish and UK passports. Now, you can see with Brexit that this has got obvious advantages. I've got two passports myself, and you just go okay. for the at Q. But there is also there in that 100,000 the suggestion of a community that they would like to have it both ways. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you, Melanie and Maria. And finally, are red kites magnificent or a menace? Paul Sargentson says in his article in The Spectator this week that red kites should never have been reintroduced into the UK and are now threatening the conservation of other endangered birds. He joins us now alongside Ian Carter, naturalist and author of The Red Kites here. Sarge, just to start us off, why do you feel so strongly on this issue of red kites?
7: I, I'm a builder and also I'm privileged to own a very small farm, in the Lee of Chilterns, very close to the Wormsley Estate where uh, the first batch of red kites were introduced getting on for 30 years ago. And because I spend my entire life outdoors, I have been able to observe the nefarious antics of the red kites at very close quarters. My very small farm of 25 acres is its all grass and half of that acreage is devoted to conservation, particularly to provide habitat for skylarks, brown hares, and most importantly, field bowls for the fodder for barn owls. I have a resident pair of barn owls who raised two broods last year, but sadly only one brood this year. And the red kites make my conservation work very difficult because they are preying on everything that I am trying to breed. I'm a little bitter about it, really particularly because in turning over half of my acreage to conservation, this incurred a significant loss of income on my small patch. And I don't really approve of feeding up the kites who are preying on the birds and small mammals that I'm trying to conserve.
2: Ian, I believe that you were involved in the reintroduction of red kites back to the UK. So I I imagine that you disagree with 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 Paul's analysis of the problems of red kites on on conservation I wonder if you if you want to respond to his uh, his article and his views on red kites
0: yeah I mean the first thing I'd say is we're restoring the red kite is putting back something that we've lived with for hundreds of years thousands of years you know red kites have have been with us they're part of our countryside and we wiped them out, you know, a few hundred years ago when anything predatory or any bird of prey was seen as a threat to, to game birds and livestock. They were relentlessly persecuted, wiped out completely from England. And this is trying to to restore them to their rightful place in the countryside. I would say first and foremost that, I mean, there are a lot of predatory birds and mammals out there. The kite can be a predator. They certainly can take small mammals fledgling birds occasionally so they can act as predators they eat a lot of earthworms which is another form of predation but by and large the red kite is designed as a highly efficient scavenger you can think of them in a similar way to the vultures that you get in in southern Europe they've got superb eyesight they've got really good flying abilities so they they spend their time sort of cruising around in the skies looking for animal carrion and that is what they're designed to live from. And that is what they eat. That's the overwhelming majority of what they eat. They they use that superb home homing on animal carrion. They're not a powerful bird. They're a big bird, like the vultures in the south of Europe. But they're not a strong bird, not a powerful bird. They can't lift away heavy items of prey. So while predation can occur, I would say the red kites are way down the list of things to worry about when it comes to... Songbirds and small mammals uh, and even livestock being being predated
2: but Ian uh, so you say of course that the, the red kite is being reintroduced and, and used to be a completely ordinary part of, of the environment here until a few hundred years ago. but I mean could the argument not be made that the environment has changed so very much uh, in the last couple of centuries that it's reintroduction it's not being reintroduced in back into the same environment from which it, it once existed. you know a lot has changed since then.
0: There has been a lot of change, but actually the red cut is superbly well adapted to our modern countryside, despite all those changes. So we've lost a lot of wildlife because of changes to the countryside. We manage the countryside far more intensively than we than we used to. And a lot of the changes to the way that farmland is managed, for example, has led to big declines in a lot of farmland birds, which is a great shame. The kite, because it's a scavenger, because it's also very adaptable and flexible and will eat a whole range of different different things, everything from tiny sort of earthworms and beetles right up to scavenging on on sort of the carcasses of, of big livestock. And then there's roadkill they can find quite easily in the modern landscape, even people putting food out specifically for the kites. So yes, things have changed a lot, but our landscape is very, very suitable for kites. And of course, you can see that now in the Chilterns, because the densities of birds there are are really quite impressive.
7: Yes, thank you, Ian. I understand all of that. question was posed by Will, has not the uh, the environment changed massively over well over the last 60 years, and it certainly has. And the farmer is always blamed for this to an extent quite rightly so. But given that we have affected the wildlife so badly over the last 60 years, we've seen such catastrophic declines in uh, songbird and farmland bird populations. My argument is, was it sensible, was it wise to introduce another predator at such a time? And you say, quite rightly, that the red kite is superbly well adapted to scavenging and and to the landscape, and it is the truth that there is not sufficient carrion available for the vast population of kites that we now have, particularly in the childrens, and for that reason, they are searching further afield. We may use the expression for prey and live prey. We all see it because we spend our lives outside, outdoors, and are. Um, subconsciously monitoring the whole monitoring the whole times. And I find it immensely distressing when I'm haymaking, and they um, hoover up the leverets. and they're taking leverets of a considerable size. They're probably eight inches long. And so if they're hoovering up my leverets and my field voles and my skylark chicks and the occasional uh, lapwing chicks, sadly lapwings have almost uh, disappeared from Lowland Britain and taking from my bird feeders and from my lawn, it's evident to all of us that they are impacting on the very species that the RSPB purports to conserve.
1: Ian, Paul makes the point in his piece that a severe cull of red kites was needed 10 years ago, which I imagine you might disagree with, but do you think it's fair to say that the population could have been managed slightly better?
0: Managed. I mean, what what you find is that the population of kites that you've got now is there because the countryside can support that many birds. And it is, again, it's showing how suitable the countryside is for the kite and frankly, how much carrion there is out there. And anyone who drives on the lanes through the Chilterns and even the, the bigger roads will see all the all the carrion. That there is available and of course people are adding to it by putting food out in their gardens which again boosts the population so i would say there is a huge probably underestimated amount of carrion out there and again i mean i do disagree that kites are a significant threat and i too have spent a lot of time in the countryside specifically following the red kites around when when they were first released we had sort of trackers on these birds and i spent More years than I'd care to remember, following the birds day after day, speaking to local people, and whilst predation, opportunistic predation can occur, it is very unusual, and it's not something that is driving the the, the animals you you mentioned, Paul, the the brown hares and the skylarks and the other things, that kites are not impacting on those at a population level. When they're attracted into the, the cutting of the hay, what they're interested in and you may notice that other things turn up as well like corvids and sometimes even gulls certainly around here they do what they're interested in is all the birds and especially mammals that have been killed and injured by the the cutters so it's a sort of it's a, a bounty of food for them they're, they're coming in they're taking advantage of that if a, if a leveret's killed by the the cutters that that they would certainly scavenge on that. But any leveret that is big enough to get away from the machinery and escape from that field is going to be too big for a kite to tackle.
7: No, this simply isn't true, because the kites do make my haymaking very, very difficult, because it's difficult enough to select a hot week, hopefully in June. If that isn't difficult enough, I'm also trying to mow my hay very, very slowly to avoid mowing Leverets, which invariably I'm able to do. I actually dog my haymaking fields before going to mow. But nevertheless, as you know, leverettes sit very, very tight. And my mower get, gets underneath them. It doesn't mash them up. And the minute they hop out in front of my tractor, they are snappled, taken away, live. And they're of a considerable size. You say, predation is not common but I'm afraid that all of the observations of my observations and those of everyone I meet and talk to in the countryside who are spending all day every day out there suggesting that predation is very common and even if it wasn't common given the the awful state of songbird populations in the countryside and it's it's not that's not kites fault is it right to add another element?
0: Yeah. One thing I'd say is there's, there are a lot of predators out there, and I would say your leverets, well, let's speak more generally. In general terms, I think hares and leverets have got more to fear from a whole range of other more highly specialist or predatory species. One thing that the yeah. kite, I think, will do... And I don't I'm not aware of any research that's been done to test this, but this it, it, it rings true to me is the kites are, are a scavenger. There are a lot of other animals, mammals and birds out there that are predators, but also rely a lot on scavenging. And I'm thinking of things like carrion crows, magpies, or foxes in particular, buzzards would be another one. So in an area like the Chilterns, where you've got a high density of kites hoovering up all the animal carrion, I strongly suspect that they will have an impact on some of the other species that maybe you're not so keen on wandering around your farm. The the things like the foxes and, and the corvids. So, again, it's all about sort of balance. And I would argue red kites have been with us for thousands and thousands of years. We've lived with them. We're just putting back what was taken away a couple of hundred years ago and maybe we'll get more of a natural balance. Maybe there'll be fewer of the of the Corvids and, and the Buzzards and the Foxes that are, are really are targeting songbirds in some cases and, and certainly will take leverage. So maybe that overall balance won't be won't be such a bad thing in the longer term.
2: Thank you, Sarge and Ian. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore.
1: And I'm Lara Prendergast, and we do hope you join us again next week.